Before we uh, turn back to the uh, portion of Scripture we read in Philippians, let's look to God in prayer. Let's pray once again. Blessed is your name, O God, most high. And as we come to you, Lord God, um, having spoken to you of our great need, having some idea um, of of our need of you, we do pray, Lord God, Uh, that you would speak to us. We know that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we ask, Lord God, that as we uh, look together at these words of of your inspired scriptures, uh, we pray that you would speak to us, you would preach to us, that uh, if we need to be rebuked, rebuke us. If we need to be comforted, Lord God, do that, we pray. Um, Lord, how we pray if there are some in here or watching on who do not know Christ, and we do pray that you would speak to them and that you would give them life. And we pray this uh, for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, for a long, long time, for years, for decades, I suppose it is, I've heard the same complaint about uh, Christian preaching, the same complaint. I've heard it a number of times. I wonder if you've heard it as well. Um, So I've heard it said that generally speaking, that there is not an awful lot or not enough preaching on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the complaint, the complaint. Not enough preaching on the parousia, you know, the return of our Lord. Have you heard the same thing? I wonder if you've heard that or not. I'm not sure about the validity of the, the, the comment or not. It's maybe one of those things that sounds good. There's not enough preaching about Christ's return. It sounds good, so what happens? It grows arms and legs, doesn't it? And before, before long, everybody has seen the same thing. Well, I suppose, to be honest, I'm not that concerned about preaching generally or preaching out there. Of course, the concern is with us in this room and watching on just now. So, the question is, what about you? What about me? What about us? So does the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, does it play an active role in your thinking on where will we go for? A weekly basis? Monthly basis? Daily basis? Do we as Christians really live out our lives in light of that day when Christ shall return. Is Christ return? Is it something that we consider in terms of what it will mean for other people that we know? And is it something that we consider in terms of what that day shall mean for us personally? Christ return. Well, this evening we're going to look at, wait for it, one verse uh, this evening in the book of Philippians. So Philippians 1 verse 6. And what we'll see, yes, as Paul's concerned, that we keep, you and I, keep an eye on that coming day of Christ's return. But more specifically, Paul's concerned that we do that in relation to our own salvation. Do you follow? So it is the idea, it's the hope that as you and I, or as the Philippian believers, as they consider God's great work in our lives and their lives, that we always maintain a view on that day when the trumpets shall sound and the skies will split 
and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will return. And I think it's, it's, it's the case that here Paul is going to teach us four lessons about our salvation in light of Christ's return. So four lessons about our salvation. So if you have scripture there in front of you, that would be wonderful. If we have this verse and its context there in front of us, and if the younger ones as well in here and at home, if we can show them uh, this verse, Philippians 1 verse 6. And the first lesson Paul teaches us here is quite simply that our salvation is a good thing. That's as simple as as it comes, isn't it? Our salvation is a good thing. Okay, now, the students um, at at St. Pete's and uh, those in school and university and the teachers will all be aware, all too aware, I'm sure, that in most written pieces of work, whether that is an essay or a dissertation, thesis, whatever it might be, it's very often necessary for there to be a defining of terms. Isn't that right? So the students know that, the If we've been to university, we can think back to that. Teachers will know this all too well. In a written piece of work, a paper, maybe an academic paper, very often we have to define what it is we're talking about. Isn't that right? Defining our terms. Well, in that sense, that's what we've got to do here. Because if you look at verse 6 with me, now what is it that Paul's speaking about? Do you see what he says? He says, quite simply, he's talking about a good work. That's it. A good work, a work. So you can see the first task, can't you? We've got to be able to define, okay, so what is that work that Paul's talking about? And especially so because there are out there, there are a couple of really widely held incorrect views about what Paul's talking about in Philippians here when he's talking about this, this work, this good work, okay? So I just want to mention those to you. So the first one is this. I'm saying it's incorrect. I hope you will agree that it's incorrect. So this good work, here's the idea. The good work refers to the financial contribution. Does that sound strange? Financial contribution. Maybe it doesn't sound strange because maybe you can think back a couple of weeks ago. Can you? A few weeks ago. Do you remember what we said? We said that part of the reason that Paul is writing this letter is to thank the Philippian believers for their monetary contribution. Do you remember this? It's kind of the same sort of thing. I'm sure St. Peter's has done this. You know, maybe a special collection at some stage. Have you done this? We've done this, right? Special collection for some mission work, something like that. Philippians seem to have done something akin to that. So the Philippians have gathered up some money. They've given it to Paul. Paul's writing this letter back to them. Partly he's doing that to thank them for this. Do we see the problem? That's clearly not what this good work is in verse 6, right? Because here in verse 6, what's in view is not what the Philippians have done in the grace of God. What's the good work? It's something that God has done through the Philippians or in the Philippians, isn't it? So what can we do? We can take a red pen, I think, can't we? We can just write a big red mark through it. It's not the financial contribution. Okay, second error... Okay, listen to this. So this good work, perhaps, as it suggested, it refers to, wait for it, it refers to creation. 
That's the second idea. The good work refers to creation. Now, that's not as strange sounding as the financial contribution, is it? Now, you think about verse 6. Think about what you've got there in reference to creation. So in verse 6, Paul's talking about something that God has begun, something that is good, and something that one day will meet this final consummation. Do you see how some people can think, at least, that it's about creation? Right? Something that God has instigated, something that's good, something that one day will be, be, enjoy this great consummation. So some people think creation. Now, I wonder if we agree with that. I'm sure we see a problem. I'm sure the kids can tell me the problem with this. Because I'll ask you, what happens on the seventh day of creation? Come on, shout it out. How dare you? Yes, God rests on creation. He rests it on the seventh day. So do we see it's not something that's continuing on? The thing in verse 6 is something that's good work, something that's continuing on. Not the same as creation. So it isn't the financial contribution. It isn't creation. And I think, I believe that everybody in the room, now from the youngest to to the oldest in the room, and you at home, you see what is in view, do you? What is Paul talking about? What is this good work? It is our salvation, isn't it? It's this radical work of the Holy Spirit seeing us changed, transformed ultimately into the likeness of Christ. Do you see what we've done? We have defined our terms, haven't we? What is this good work? It is this work of salvation. Now, before we move on, what I actually want you to notice here is the adjective. So look at verse 6. What is this work? Again, maybe the younger people. What is the work? Is it an incomplete work? No. Is it a bad work? No. Majestic work? No. Look at it, friends. Linger on it for a moment. This work of salvation is a good work. And isn't it the case that actually, as a church in the 21st century in Scotland, we need to linger on that reality? The reality that what God is doing in his people, in his church, is a good work. See, I'm sure we'd all probably agree. It's this idea, but it's true, isn't it? That society is changing, and it's changing really quickly, rapidly. Scottish society is changing, isn't it? I think it's probably the older people in the congregation that can uh, recognize that most clearly, isn't it? Now, where do we see the change most acutely? We see it in society's attitude, changing attitude to biblical Christianity. It's not where it's so obviously, it's moving so quickly. Because it wasn't that long ago, I'm not that old, so I can probably remember it, uh, that it wasn't that long ago where it was actually not such a terrible thing to be part of a church. In Scotland, was it? Well, it was actually viewed as being, you know, an admirable thing, you know, a virtuous thing to be, to be involved in a church. Is that the same today? All you need to do is you need to think about the Keir Starmer episode in London. You just need to even linger on that for a moment. Now, do you see what's happened in our society today? To be in any way connected to a church, even for a few minutes, you are classified as a bigot. Aren't you? You're classified as a, as a fool. It's the narrative that our children are hearing in school. It's the narrative that you are hearing and faced with on a daily basis. What is biblical Christianity? What is Christian morality? It's wicked. It's destructive. 
It's a bad thing, biblical Christianity. Morality, biblical morality is an evil thing. Well, in this environment, do we not need to keep coming back to what Paul says here? What does he confront you with tonight? The fact that God's work in our hearts, his work of salvation in the church, it is a good thing. Paul tells you, you can see a thing, can't you? That he's got this sort of transformational effects of salvation in view. Doesn't Paul have that? Because you see it in verse 6, he's talking about a work where, a work in us. Do you see the reality? Do you see what he's talking about? The fact that the Holy Spirit is at work and changing us. And how? For good. I mean, every passing day, the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of, of God's people and doing what? stripping away evil day by day. The Holy Spirit will work in our hearts and changing us and, and ripping away sin and, and misery and evil. There is this continuous movement, this continuous work, but it's a, it's a continuous righteous work of the Holy Spirit. Is it not something that we need to keep teaching our children? Is it not something that you and I keep, need to keep reminding ourselves, given that we are bombarded with counter messages about the evil of biblical Christianity? No. What is God doing tonight in you? Right now, in your heart, Christian friend, God is at work and he is doing a good thing. Second lesson we see here is that our salvation is initiated by God. It's initiated by God. Can I ask you all to do this? Could you, could you please just pick up your Bible and look at verse 6 again? And, and just look to the, the beginning. A couple of phrases. First few words here. So what does Paul say? So being confident of this. You get that bit, do you? What's the, what's the next few words? That What does it say? That he who... Wait a minute. He who began a good work in you. He, God, he who began a good work. Now, you, you can see what, you, what, you're, what you're staring at, what's staring back at you. It is, the, of course, the fact that in reality, you and I did not decide to follow Jesus. That's what's staring back at us there, isn't it? The reality, you and I did not initiate our salvation, our saving faith, it's a reality that instead God, who has done absolutely everything necessary to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the word that Paul uses as well, word he uses is quite a rare word. I think it's found only once in the rest of the New Testament, and it's a really solemn word, and it's this idea that God has planned and executed something, or it's often translated or thought about like this, that God has, when it comes to our salvation, God has inaugurated, inaugurated our salvation. Now, yeah, I know this, this can be maybe potentially a controversial idea. God, divine initiative in salvation. Maybe because of that, I think it's important we establish, just for a moment, just the utter and complete necessity of that spiritual truth. Necessary that God brings us to life. So, do you remember, I think maybe the first sermon here a month ago, a few weeks ago, do you remember I talked about deer? Do you remember I talked about that reality of, of <laughs> driving along the back roads and a deer jumps at us? you remember that now? 
That, that, that's happened to me, I don't know how many times. It happened to me a good number of years ago when I was driving outside Inverness on a back road. And I was not speeding. <laughs> I was not speeding. I was driving the speed limit, or I hadn't even got to the speed limit. Um, and it was one of those roads where you, you have trees, you know, a narrow back road, and you've got the trees on either side. Okay, and you, you get up towards the speed limit, whatever that speed limit was. And, and you know if you drive or you've been in these circumstances, sometimes there's nothing you can do. You know, and driving along, and then all of a sudden, deer right out in, in front of me. There's not, you, no time to you know, react, no time to move. So I, I, hit, I hit the deer, and what I do is I, I drive beyond it. You know, I've hit it at 50 miles an hour, whatever it is, and I, I pull in uh, just a little bit, 100 yards down the, the road, and I, I remember vividly sitting in the driver's seat, just looking in the rear view mirror at the deer and, and just thinking, move yourself. <laughs> you know, just move. You know, didn't want a car to come, you know, round the corner and hit the deer again or the car have an accident or it's like, move, just, just limp off to the side of the, the road. And I sat there for a moment and then eventually I thought, right, and I got out of the car and I went round to the deer. You know where it's going? But I got round to the deer and I realised why it wasn't moving. It's because it was incapable of moving. Because the deer was dead. Now, you might say, it's a bit bleak this evening. But in all seriousness, do we not have to be aware of it? That that's the spiritual reality we're dealing with? That that is why divine initiative and salvation is so absolutely necessary. Why isn't it that we did not decide to follow Jesus? Why did we not determine our own salvation? Why? Because like that deer, we were dead. We were entirely incapable of any movement spiritually for good. And in fact, isn't that what Paul tells us elsewhere? And how stark is the language? If you thought this was bleak, what does Paul say to you in Ephesians? He said, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not, not you know, comatose. We were dead. And Paul goes on to say, verse 5 in Ephesians 2, what? But God made us alive. You know, first John, we are people who are born of God. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, no one comes to me except the Father draws him. Do you see it? It's only in God. It's only by his divine initiative that anyone, any place, any time can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, right, rather than being controversial, isn't that exciting for us? Isn't it amazing when you think about your evangelism or your witness? I wonder if you're down about that just now, your witness as a Christian. Isn't this actually invigorating and exciting? Maybe you know the story of how C.S. Lewis uh, came to uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? 
Maybe we know that story, maybe we don't. C.S. Lewis was just the most unwilling convert. You know, he had it all, like he had it mapped out. He had all the answers. Like he, he, he knew it and he was, you know, vigorous in his opposition to Jesus Christ. Did it all, he knew it all. And then he talks about his conversion and he says, one night, one night, it was as though God just picked him up <laughs> and then God chucked him over his shoulder and God carried C.S. Lewis kicking and screaming into salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't it give you hope for those people in your life just now that seem so set against Jesus Christ? We try to witness to them and they, they don't want to hear it. And they've got all the answers. They've, they've got it all mapped out. Don't you see? That can happen in a moment. Why? Because of divine initiative in salvation. And, and, and maybe you can, just now, maybe you can imagine this, Philippians 1.6, being read out in the first century to the people in Philippi. Can you imagine what that'd be like? It'd be great to be there. You know, you can imagine in Philippi, you know, like there are people, like we've just got correspondence from Paul. Get, get everybody together. Who's there? Who gathers together? You've got the Roman jailer and his whole household, of course. And you've got that little girl who's been freed, yeah, from the, from the, from the demon. And who else is there? Who else is there? Lydia. Lydia. And can you imagine her? Can you imagine her reading verse 6? Verse 6. God began a good work. He began a good work. What does Lydia do? Doesn't she worship God? Because what do we read in Acts chapter 16? Does it say this? Acts 16. Does it say that upon hearing the gospel for the first time, Lydia decided to follow Jesus? Does not, does it? Acts chapter 16. She hears the gospel for the first time and... The Lord opened Lydia's heart. We see here, we see consistently in God's word, we see divine initiative in salvation. So our salvation is a good thing. Our salvation is something initiated by God. Third, let's note here this lesson that our salvation will certainly, certainly be completed. Our salvation will be certainly completed. So, uh, years ago, I don't think I've mentioned this to you, but years ago, Catherine and myself, we bought a house in Fife. So we bought a house in Inverkeething. It did strike me earlier on that there might be people who are, who are joining the live stream. We don't know who joins. It might be people from different parts of the world and have never heard of Inverkeething and Fife. So if you imagine... <laughs> If you imagine a tropical paradise <laughs> with palm trees and a beach, then Inverkeeding is not like that. But regardless, we bought a house in Inverkeeding. I suppose the first thing for us was uh, that it was expensive to buy a house. Not because it was an expensive house. It wasn't. But we were young. And the thought of buying a house, the sums involved so we bought this house it was expensive 
We moved in, and I'll be frank with you, it was a dump. <laughs> it was an absolute dump. Uh, so a complete renovation project, you know. So uh, all the electrics needing done, the plumbing, the, 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 the whole works. Now, again, seriously, is that not a good picture of us and a good picture of our own salvation and our own situation before God? What has God done with you, Christian friend? So he has purchased you at a phenomenal cost, the blood of his own son. And yes, what has God done? But he has moved in through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's probably putting it politely to say that you and I are fixer-uppers spiritually. Are we not? We are renovation projects aren't we? Now, against that backdrop, Paul actually gives you tonight two reasons for real joy. Maybe this evening as a Christian, you need joy. Paul gives you reason, cause for joy here. The, the first reason is this. He shows you that even that work of renovation just now is a divine work, is his work. So can I ask you to look at verse 6 again? It's all verse 6, isn't it? But keep an eye on verse 6. So think about it. So he who began, do you see where I am? He who began a good work, what's the next bit? Isn't it cause for, for hope and celebration? He who began that good work will carry it on. So do you see the idea? It's not that God causes us to come to faith by his Holy Spirit, breathes life into us, and then God says, on your bike, away you go. It's the idea that God continues that word, doesn't he, in our hearts, even just now, by his Holy Spirit. Now, I think we've got to be slightly careful here, because what does that not mean? It does not mean that we are inactive, does it? It doesn't mean that you and I are passive. So unlike justification, which is God's work, his work alone, our sanctification, we're involved, aren't we? You and I are involved in this growth in holiness. But what is Paul underlying for you here? Saying ultimately, that's still God's work. Even that sanctification, that's God's work. Our confession puts it like this. See if you can hear this. So our confession, Westminster Confession, talking about sanctification, says this, it is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are able more and more to die to sin. Isn't that great? Isn't it? Hope for us, we're fighting our sin. Even that, God's work. But I said two things, two causes for joy. It's actually the second thing here that I think is Paul's main point in verse 6. So if you've been drifting off and thinking about the week, come back. This is the main thing that Paul's talking about here. Make sure you get it. That since our salvation is God's work, Paul tells us that one day it will be complete. Since it's God's work, it will be complete. I wonder if you can see the logic you can see the logic, can you? Do you know what? I think um, the wives in the room and the wives at home, I'm sure they can see the logic here. I'm going to tar all the husbands with a bad brush here. But isn't it true, men, that largely speaking, we are, we are people of half measures? <laughs> I, I shouldn't tar all the husbands 
uh, in the room with the same brush. It's certainly true of me. Maybe it's true of you. We begin a lot of things. Maybe the, the wives can, you know, maybe raise an eyebrow uh, here. You know, if, if you were to inspect our homes, what would you find? Guys, I think we've got to hold our hands up. There might be a half-painted fence that you might find, or there's that bathroom that we began to tile in 1998, you know. And it, but it's nearly there, but it's not quite finished. We are people of half-measures. And you see the logic. Do you? God is not like us. God is not a God of half measures. By his, you see it, don't you? By his nature, by his perfection, the reality is that every single thing that our God starts, by his very nature and perfection, everything he starts, he finishes. Everything God begins, he completes. So if God begins a good work in the heart of someone, what do we know? What can we be guaranteed of? We are guaranteed that God will complete that. He'll bring it to a conclusion. In fact, maybe you can see doctrinally, theologically, what you've got in your hands in verse 6. In verse 6, this is the Reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Isn't it? Do we understand that? We do, don't we? Not the idea that we will persevere in our own strength through the Christian life. Not that, but the reality that God will not let his people go. That we are as people, as his people, eternally secure. We are safe in Christ's hand. Nothing can snatch us away. Why? Why? Because of the very nature of our God. Whatever he starts. He finishes. Whatever he begins, our Lord completes. And I think, I think that should give you hope and joy if this evening you are really struggling with specific sin. Is that you? I mean, certain sins that you, 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 you have tried to, to battle and wrestle and you can't seem to shake these sins and you feel tonight as though you're at a dead end, you're at this cul-de-sac and you're beginning to despair. Do not despair. This evening you turn back to God. Do you see what you're, you're showing here? You're a renovation project. Absolutely you are. You are. You're a fixer-upper. But God is at work in your life. And God will not stop in your life till every single sin is gone. Last thing. We've seen our salvation is a good thing. We've seen it as initiated by God. It will be certainly completed. Last thing. Our salvation will enjoy a day of revelation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, you see what we've been doing tonight, I'm sure. We've been taking verse 6 we cut it up and we've been looking at the little phrases of verse 6. There is one phrase still remaining, isn't there? So can you look at the end of verse 6? Please show the little ones if you can. The end of verse 6. I'll read it in two uh, versions. So the NIV, some of you will have that, will you? So it says, that he will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's the ESV. He'll carry it on to completion. He'll carry it on to completion. Bring it to completion 
on the day of Christ Jesus. Now, you know about me that I've been a minister in London. And so I'm a Scotsman preaching in London for a long, long time. So because of that, the nature of that, you can imagine I have to be thinking through my vocabulary (laughs) a lot of the time as a Scot, speaking into such a sort of diverse place, a sort of multicultural place. I've always got to be thinking, I have lost count how many times maybe a Nigerian and a Brazilian has come up and said, like, what was that Scottish term that you used? What, you know, a Nigerian will come up and say, like, what does blethering mean? Uh, or, you know, a Brazilian comes up and said, you, you said that one of your elders was Glacet. What does... <laughs> I have never said that, but that was a terrible example. Uh, but you get the idea to be you know, precise, to be thoughtful about the vocabulary, about the terminology now. Again, there's something like that here, because I wonder if you see what Paul is doing. If you think biblically, and you think about the end, this last phrase, do you see what Paul's doing here? So he is adopting, thinking through his terminology, and he adopts Old Testament language, doesn't he? Do you notice that in the books of Joel, Amos, Malachi, list goes on. These Old Testament prophets, you know this, don't you? That they talked about the day of the Lord. They prophesied about the day of the Lord. What was that to the Old Testament prophets? It was this coming day of God's visitation, a day primarily of judgment. What's Paul do? Paul takes that language very deliberately and he applies it to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that day when Christ returns, that day, yes, of judgment. Hear that. But, but to Paul also, it's a day where all things will, will come to this final consummation. And isn't that, if you're a Christian in here this evening, the most exciting thought? Isn't that a wonderful prospect? Because what is Paul saying? He's saying there is a day that's set in God's calendar, a day when his work in your life will be utterly complete. It's a day rapidly coming towards you when your salvation will be full and complete, a day when all of the lukewarmness in our hearts, doesn't it make you sick to see our spiritual apathy? There's a day coming when all of that is going to be gone. Isn't it marvelous? A day when even the last vestige of our sin will be removed. And listen to me, it is not a day where you will be declared just. That's already happened. We've been declared just as we come to Christ, but it is a day. What are the words? That that hymn is a day when all the ransomed church of Christ we saved to sin no more. A wonderful thought, but we've got to be careful because we talked about vocabulary, didn't we? We talked about terminology. So my question for you is this. What does Paul call the day? Look at it, verse 6. Does he call it the day of the church? Does he call it the day of Andy Pearson? Does he call it the day of, insert your name, does he call it the day of St. Peter's, the day of our vindication? Does he call it the day of our revelation of our salvation? He does not. He calls it the day of Christ Jesus. And isn't that ever so important for us to focus on? We are in verse 6. We could go away from this verse, focused all on what's going to happen to us and what all of this means for us. You see, don't you? 
the ultimate focus ought to be on your Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, as I close, I do urge you just now, really, to consider him. Consider Jesus. Consider that that day, really, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a day of wonderful joy for the church. A day of, a day of victory. A day of tears of joy and rejoicing and delight. But why? Because it's a day we'll see him. A day where we shall be made like him. That day coming is a day when Jesus Christ will not just be manifest to all of the world. It's a day because of what Christ has done in his life, righteous, and his death, atoning for sin, his resurrection. He won't just be manifest. Jesus Christ will be worshipped by all. When you consider that day is coming, what do we, what do we cry out? But Maranatha, Lord, come. Come quickly. And I end with a really simple question for you. Has this wonderful God who completes what he begins always, now think about it for yourself, the question, has this God began a work in your life? Has he? If so, don't you rejoice as you go home tonight? He loved you before the foundation of the world. He chose you. And one day soon, you are going to be complete in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Don't you go home rejoicing? But if I'd ask you that question before you came through the doors or before the service started and you were to say, no, he has not begun a work in my life, then I'd do follow up asking, is it changing? Is it could it be that God is beginning a work in your life even now? Is God confronting you with your sinfulness, your wretchedness? Is he showing you, Jesus, the only way of salvation? Is God beginning a work in your life even now? If so, listen to me. Yield. Yield even this hour. Come to Jesus Christ. In fact, do as that Roman jailer did in Philippi. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Father God, we can but bow and marvel at your greatness and your goodness. Uh, to us, your people, we are so utterly uh, ill-deserving. We do not merit any goodness at all. And yet you have chosen us. You have breathed into us eternal life. You have brought us to yourself and you will complete the work in us that we might be made in the likeness of our glorious Savior. We do pray that you would continue that work this week, that we would come on in our growth, in grace and holiness, and all for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and his honor, in whose name we pray. Amen.